Hello, you're listening to episode 5 of the Poet in the City podcast. And in this episode, we're talking about poetry and... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'll start that again. Hello, you're listening to episode 5 of the Poet in the City podcast. And in this episode, we're talking about poetry and... (laughs) Look, excuse me, I'm trying to present a show here. (sighs) Some people, I tell you. Well, you've probably already guessed it. In this episode, we're talking about poetry and comedy. Luke's got a joke. Luke's got a punchline. All of it fresh from the literary front line. There's a sort of position you can be in where life is so terrible, what can you do but laugh? (laughs) You know that word association game? The one where someone says a word like poetry and then someone else follows it up with an associated word like... So long and so tedious. OK, not those. Maybe something like inspiring. Well, one word you may not expect to hear with poetry is comedy. But in Britain we do comic verse brilliantly. So in this programme, laughter takes centre stage. Expect poems about cats falling over banana skins, men in public transport, fatherhood and the honour system. But first stop is poetry and stand-up, and taking to the stage is Luke Wright. Luke has performed his comic poetry to crowds around the world, and part of his comic appeal is the fact that he really doesn't look like a typical poet. I mean, there's the quiff, and the jacket, and the pocket handkerchief. I, I, I grew up around Martin Ewell and John Cooper Clark, you know, the two t- t- sort of dandy poets, you know, and, and, and I and I thought, well, that's the way you dress, you know. <laughs> there is a sort of uniform, really. There's this, it's a sort of somewhere between a, an Edwardian gent and, uh, I don't know, like a rock and roller, basically. Here he comes, all style and snuff, the rubber glove with lacy cuff from icy quips in perfume fug to scrubbing kits he called for the rug. It's Oscar Wilde, meets Mother Hubbard, in an east of England suburb, wears that velvet pinny tight, stay at home dandy, he's alright, man a nappy, man a bib, he does his bit for women's lib by bleaching teaspoons in his topper, household chores, he does them proper, homework needn't be a drag, romantic Hey, that's my bag. Dad, please stop quoting Byron. Stay at home dandy. Go on, try one. The school run's never seen his ilk. The tailored trues, the plume of silk, the pocket watch, the floral scarf with polka dots of baby bath. Cry hipparay, this popinjay, puce peacock of the PTA, frayed pantaloons and a riding crop. Stay at home dandy. Soccer fop. Weekly shop. Pa, it's a spa day. Menthol supers. Bottle of Chardonnay, then good lunch with the village movers, Jeremy Irons, Geoffrey Hoover's playgroup, watch the gropey mum, what's for tea, Dad? Opium. Starch cravat and vampish slap, stay at home dandy, what a chap, the narcissistic nanny man who does the things Aunt Fanny can, mum's net break, AIBU, my wife won't let me share her shoes, to garden next, to prance and prune, a hazy crazy afternoon, he nips and buds le fleur de mel, stay at home dandy, fuck, he's swell, from middle England, grey and mean, all rank hypocrisy and spleen, comes fresh caprice, in savile suits, and champagne rinse rec- Coco boots, wreck the rules, lose your label, still get dinner on the table. Love thyself, yes, but love thy kin. Stay at home, dandy. Finn. 
More and more, it seems like comics and poets are sharing the same stages. Think of the Latitude Festival or the Edinburgh Fringe. So, do comics and poets actually have a lot in common? I was thinking, you know, if you're a poet, say, you're working alone, mm. I'm guessing a lot of the way that you collect material might be through observation, through your own life, mm, yeah. things you scribble down, that kind of thing. You take a show out, you go on the road. It sounds kind of similar to a stand-up in yeah, a way. Yeah, it's a really it's similar life to stand-up. Yeah, really similar. You know, you could say that I'm just a different form of stand-up, but, I mean, it's not, not, not artistically, but, but lifestyle... Yeah, totally. Then I, I sort of looked at the stand-up comedians and used them as a sort of... As a sort of, you know, model for the way that I'd go out and do my life. And I was on the comedy circuit for a while, for about six months, but then the poet, just doing poetry, sort of took off and I found a way of getting, you know, getting a show out there. And also, like, I think just some nights, you just weren't ever going to win by doing what I do, you know. Some nights people are like, oh, yeah, this is quite interesting. But some nights people are just like, this is too weird. OK, poetry and stand-up, but poetry and singing? Do take Muriel out, she is looking so wan. Do take Muriel out, all her friends have gone. And after too much pressure, looking for them in the palace, she goes home to too much leisure, and this is what her life is. All her friends are gone, and she is alone, and she looks for them where they have never been, and her peace is flown. Her friends went into the forest and across the river and the desert took their footsteps and they went with a believer. Ah, they are gone, they were so beautiful and she cannot come to them and she kneels in her room at night crying amen. Do take Muriel out, although your name is death. She will not complain when you dance her over the blasted heath. <laughs> the voice of the inimitable Zoe Wanamaker, performing Do Take Muriel Out, at Poets in the City's celebration of the late, great Stevie Smith, and followed next by one of Stevie's comic classics, The Galloping Cat. Like Luke Wright, Stevie Smith broke the rules about what a poet is supposed to look and sound like, and she wasn't just popular with young audiences in the 1960s either along with the likes of Morrissey, Jarvis Cocker and even Sylvia Plath, who famously sent Smith a fan letter. Rachel Cook, writer and critic at The Observer, explains why she counts herself as another Smith addict. She's certainly the first poet I read as an adult, or as a teenager, I should say, and, you know, it was so exciting because... They seem to be so easy to read. Of course, you, as you read them more, you find out they're very complex. But at that time, I was rather put off poetry because it seemed so long and so tedious. And she just seemed to be fun and they, you could manage them, I suppose. So I just took to her. And I also fell in love with her as well as a person. I just thought, I loved the way she looked and um, you, know, you can see I'm wearing a little brooch. I think I'd, I, things like that, I just always... I loved that sort of bird-like look she had, and I, I sort of... She became a bit of a heroine for me, you know, because she was a spinster, and she was so plucky and stoical, and what she did was she just was what she wanted to be, and the world had to fit around that, and I admired that. I love this one. One can sometimes find relief from all one's troubles by looking at animals. But I'm afraid you won't find much relief in looking at the galloping cat. 
which is the next poem. It's a horrible animal. <laughs> Galloping cat. Oh, I'm a cat that likes to gallop about doing good. So, one day when I was galloping about doing good, I saw a figure in the path. I said, get off, because I'm a cat that likes to gallop about doing good. But he did not move. Instead, he raised his hand as if to land me a cuff. So I made to dodge, so as to prevent him bringing it off. Unfortunately, I slid on a banana skin some ass had left instead of putting in the bin. So his hand caught me on the cheek. I tried to lay his arm open from wrist to elbow with my sharp teeth because I am a cat that likes to gallop about doing good. Would you believe it? He wasn't there. My teeth meant nothing but air. But a voice said, poor cat, meaning me, and a soft stroke came on my head. Since when I have been bald. <laughs> I regard myself as a martyr to doing good. Also, I heard a swoosh as of wings and saw a halo shining at the height of Mrs. Gubbins's backyard fence. So I thought, what's the good of galloping about doing good when angels stand in the path and do not do as they should, such as having an arm to be bitten off? All the same, I intend to go on being a cat that likes to gallop about doing good. So now with my bald head I go, chopping the untidy flowers down to and fro and scooping up the grass to show underneath the cinder path of wrath. Ha, 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 ho. Angels aren't the only ones who do not know what's what. And that galloping about doing good is a full-time job that needs an experienced eye of earthly sharpness, worth, I dare say, if you'll forgive a personal note, a good deal more than all that sky stuff of angels that makes so bold as to pity a cat like me that gallops about doing good. Funny poetry can be entertaining, but is there any more to it than that? Are poets like Stevie Smith using comedy to shake things up, to challenge the existing literary order? Literary criticism is actually quite bad at knowing what to do with comedy or people who are playing things for laughs. Dr Will May, editor of the Collected Poems and Drawings of Stevie Smith. I am the self-appointed guardian of English literature. I believe tremendously in the significance of age. I believe that a writer is wise at 50, 10 years wise at 60, at 70, a sage. She was very um, critical of the idea that a poet's a special person. She says, you know, that there'll always be another poet. And part of toppling the poet from their sort of romantic plinth of genius allows the poetry to speak to many more people and allows many more people to think of themselves as, as poets as well. That idea that comic poetry can be democratising, that humour can humanise, came up when I spoke to patron of Poet in the City and best-selling poet, Wendy Cope. I've never set out to be funny. I just, it just happens. I mean, I just write what I have to write. And sometimes, because I have a sense of humour, it sometimes gets into my poems. And I sort of think, well, you know, to begin with, it didn't. And I think that part of any poet's development is that the, the, more of, the more of you that gets into your poems, the better. 
because then, you know, it's your own voice and you're a credible human being. You know, you sometimes read poems by somebody, some people, that you could never believe that this person went into a pub and had a pint of beer because they're so unbelievably high-minded. And I don't think that's a good thing. I think it's a good idea if the poet sounds like a real human being. And obviously humour is one thing that helps with that. In terms of your, your poetry, you, you read all over the world. Do the jokes translate? Because, you know, we were looking at, I suppose, specifically at British poets, but when you go to America, say, do, do yeah, the jokes Yeah, no work? problem. People said to me, your poems won't work in America because the Americans have a different sense of humour, and it's absolute rubbish. They work just as well in America as they work here. One place where it didn't work, I went to this festival in Macedonia one time, and they just they translated bloody men into Macedonian. And I know the translator had to ask me, did that mean literally bloody or, you know, bloody as a... And so everywhere I went, I had to read Bloody Men in English and then somebody read it in Macedonian and it absolutely, you know, I don't know, God knows what it said in Macedonian, but certainly nobody laughed. Bloody Men. Bloody Men are like bloody buses. You wait for about a year and as soon as one approaches your stop, two or three others appear. You look at them, flashing their indicators offering you a ride. You're trying to read the destinations. You haven't much time to decide. If you make a mistake, there is no turning back. Jump off and you'll stand there and gaze while the cars and the taxis and lorries go by and the minutes, the hours, the days. When I read that one as a reading, I usually afterwards read a couple of questions I found in a school textbook about that poem, about which one was... In what ways do the men she meets flash their indicators? Uh, anyway, um, do people get put off poetry at school? <laughs> I know. If school teachers sometimes take poetry a little bit too seriously, then ironically, literary culture often doesn't take comic poetry seriously enough. It is used as a put down nowadays. It is used as a put down. And for that reason, I don't like it. I think if it was properly used, as maybe it was in the past, I wouldn't mind it so much. But the way most people use the expression like verse just implies that if you make jokes, then you know you're second rate not to be taken seriously. Well, has gender ever come into things? Because I was thinking, you know, somebody like Stevie Smith, say, she's often, words often used for her, you know, eccentric and playful and whimsical. Yeah, I saw a television programme once we were discussing, there are a number of male poets plus Patricia Beer, the late Patricia Beer, and she was the only one sticking up for Stevie Smith, and all the others were sort of putting her down in that, you know, bit minor, a bit eccentric. I think Stevie Smith was absolutely terrific. There's a notion as well that, you know, women can't be funny. There's a kind of stereotype, I think a lot of female comics say that, that they get this a lot. That they, yeah. Do you, have you had that in poetry, that sort of surprise that women can be witty and sort of... No, I don't think I've come across that because it's a bit suspect being funny at all in poetry. Well, you yeah, know, it is, it's a bit suspect. And I think you can get away with sort of... I mean, someone like Simon Armitage is often very funny, but somehow he's managed not to have the image of somebody who's primarily a funny poet, although he is actually often funny. You know, laughter probably has been a little neglected in scientific studies in the last sort of 100 years, but actually in the last few years there's a real interest suddenly in laughter and you see it, there's quite a few people working in, in London on laughter. Another one is Casper um, Adaman, who's a developmental psychologist, studies laughing babies. There's a lot in America as well, so I think you're going to see a real interest in laughter. 
you know, maybe in 10 years, 15 years time, we're going to suddenly see quite a lot of it out there, I think. For scientists, academics and philosophers, laughter matters. So I went to London's Welcome Collection to meet with Dr Tiffany Watt-Smith, author of the Book of Human Emotions and research fellow at the Queen Mary University of London Centre for the History of the Emotions. Because comedy is complex. Laughter contains not only a range of emotions, but a poem can elicit so many types of laughter too. From the laughter of joy and connection to the laughter of complete despair. I wanted to find out not only about the significance of laughter, but of its role in art and in culture too. Do we know why, whether for evolutionary or sort of social reasons, why do we laugh? Is there any theories out there for why this is? There are loads of theories for, what, for why we laugh, and, they, and those theories have changed kind of sometimes quite dramatically over history, so I could certainly talk a little bit about the different historical theories around laughter. You see laughter takes various different, has various different roles in philosophy over time. I think Aristotle talks about the baby's first laugh as its moment of insolment. So this is the moment that we become fully human, you know, as a to an animal and that that moment comes with a with the first laugh and actually there's a, a navajo first laugh ceremony which this is still being celebrated in some cultures the sense that when a baby laughs this is its sort of entrance into our world as opposed to this sort of like very animalistic or primitive world of, of the kind of newborn and this sense that laughter is sort of fundamentally about being human and being part of the the sort of collective or the co- community of communicators uh, is, is something that's really very interesting to neuroscientists today and there are a collection of really interesting neuroscientists who work on laughter the most interesting of which I think is Professor Sophie Scott she's here at UCL in London and she's very interested in what you or I might think of as sort of fake laughter or false laughter so that's the sort of laughter that we do when we want to join in you know you might not even get the joke but <laughs> type of laughter you know which is sort of obviously and it's slightly cringy and you think well you know that's clearly a sort of off-putting and, un- and slightly unpleasant thing but she's very interested in in how important it is that we that we do join in and what laughter does as a sort of sign of of kind of oiling the wheels so laughter is what makes us human and it enables us to connect with each other which means funny poems have to be a good thing but what about when it comes to writing them i love writing those last two lines of a sonnet and you've got the other 12 and i think you know ah now i can enjoy myself don't care how long it takes to get the final couplet right, but this is the good bit. Whether it's using poetic form to your advantage, taking the profundity of haiku for an opportunity for banality, or coming up with a classic one-liner, writing comedy in poetry is a skilled and serious business. So Wendy, Luke, how do you put jokes in poems? I do say to people, actually, don't try it. Someone asked me about this at a reading the other day, what advice I would give to someone. And I said, actually, don't try to be funny. Um, But what I can teach people is if they're trying to be funny in traditional forms, I can tell them what they're doing wrong. (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm very, very um, being extremely strict and fussy about if you're using traditional forms, you've got to get them right. I'm often surprised at what bits work and what bits don't. (laughs) I've been doing this for 16 years and I'll write a line which I think is just so perfect and funny, but actually sometimes they're the ones that are a bit too clever and don't actually get the big, you know, they get get a titter, but then other stuff which you kind of threw in there. Yeah, they they can be the the, the most killer lines and so I, I do still get surprised by it. 
When it comes to a form of comedy that British poets are known for, satire, then skill and craft are essential to hit the target. I mean, I would never do a ranty, serious political poem without some sort of wryness or cleverness of language or something. You can't just hit people over the head with it. You've, you've, got, you've got to sort of draw them in some way. And maybe it's not just making gags, maybe it's sort of being, you know, using wordplay or, or, being, or being lyrical. But um, comedy's a great one for, you know, letting people, people let their guard down. They, they have a good time and then, then you hit them or something. Hurrah! New Year! Let's play who's who. The list, please, George. Let's keep it blue. Yes, yes, of course. About time to have a gong, have a gong, have a gong. Wee, wee. A KB for Arthur and my sister's husband's father. Oh, better not forget the barber. Have a gong, have a gong, have a gong. Do you sport lucre's heady scent and hoover up the wretched's rent? You pillar of establishment. Have a gong, have a gong, have a gong. This fellow here, he sank a bank. And this one gave us cut price tanks. Is that for us? You should have. Thanks. Have a gong, have a gong, have a gong. Famous people, bring your mug, and with its stardom's manic fug, come here, give us a tacit plug. Have a gong, have a gong, have a gong. Morning, ma'am, here's Rupert Brine. We play squash, his game's sublime, although I think I'll win next time. Aru, have a gong, have a gong. Angry artist, full of bile, come douse your fire in regal style. Well done, you're in, now hold and smile. Have a gong, have a gong, have a gong. Elitist? No! Why, here's a nurse. Long on hours, short on purse, so progressive, so diverse. Have a gong, have a gong, have a gong, but just a little one. Not an O-B-E, just a meh-B-E. Well done, you. We see, we see. Now move along. Yes, yes, right, good. I need to give my pal a knighthood. Good one, Jeffers. Well, I trust. Golf next Tuesday. Let's discuss your next donation to the party. Thank you, ma'am. Yes, let's depart. Eh, have a gong, have a gong, have a gong, gong, gong. Scratch my back and sing along. We'll croon a patriotic song and dream of when we ruled Hong Kong. It's tradition. Can't be wrong. Sure as old Big Ben goes bongs, bound to cause a contretemps. Have a gong, have a gong, have a gong, gong, gong. Hip, hip, hurrah. Yes, Britain's best. Dulcie decorum est, etc. I forget the rest. Have a gong, have a gong, have a gong. Ah, there's nothing better than having a good old chuckle at the establishment. But when it comes to poetry or arts audiences, is the joke actually on us? Now, I didn't ever work on a Shakespeare comedy, but obviously I've seen loads of them. <laughs> and they're always very funny. Um, and there is a sort of awful laughter, isn't there, that happens in an audience when they get this joke. Before becoming a cultural historian specialising in the history of emotions, Tiffany worked as a theatre director, so she knows all about that Shakespeare comedy laugh. You know the one. It's that laughter in the audience you sometimes hear at the theatre or at poetry readings. And it's a form of laughter I've been really curious about. So Tiffany pointed me to the work of Dr Sam Friedman of the London School of Economics. By studying audiences at the Edinburgh Fringe, he's come up with some fascinating theories about how our laughter is actually bound up with expressing social status and class. Over to Tiffany. And he was sort of looking at the different kinds of audience responses and the way that laughter was being used in different audiences. So, for example, if he was looking at sort of Marcus Brigstock or something like that, and, and there was a particular kind of laughter that was being done in the crowd, which, was, which seemed to be a kind of 
I mean, if we talk about la- laughter always being a kind of communication, then what this was communicating was a sort of clever cleverness, you know, sort of like getting the joke. I think his research was trying to put a spotlight on the ways in which laughter can be not entirely innocent, I suppose. I mean, we might like to think of our laughter, like all of our emotions, we like we might like to think of them as being some sort of a-cultural, you know, that they're sort of like coming from the truest parts of ourselves. And he's sort of saying, look, you know, actually laughter is an incredibly complex emotional response and it's doing all of this work. It's doing work about class and belonging and status. And there's another type of comedy that British poets are brilliant at. It's that ability to laugh when everything's going wrong. The Taraji comic. Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much too far out for new thought, and not waving, but drowning. Poor chap, he always loved larking, and now he's dead. It must have been too cold for him, his heart gave way, they said. Oh, no, 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 it was too cold always, still the dead one lay moaning. I was much too far out all my life, and not waving, but drowning. Stevie Smith's Not Waving But Drowning must be one of the most well-known poems of the 20th century. In the midst of life's disasters, for some poets it's comedy that can be the raft to lead back to safe shores. In your own writing, how has comedy... Because I know you said you've written often in very dark places and and does humour come out of that. How how does that tension work? Well, there's a poem in one of my books called Some More Like Verse, which is an ironic title. And I, I was feeling suicidal when I started writing that poem. I was feeling really, really low. And by the time... I don't know if it's exactly funny, but certainly by the time I finished writing it, it does have quite a flippant tone, I think. And by the time I finished writing it, I was feeling a lot better. This thing about poetry is therapy, which some people sneer at, and I certainly don't. But I think if poetry and therapy is going to work either as poetry or as therapy, something, some trans- something has to happen in the course of writing the poem that changes the way you feel. Some more light verse. You have to try, you see a shrink, you learn a lot, you read, you think, you struggle to improve your looks, you meet some men, you write some books, you eat good food, you give up junk, you do not smoke, you don't get drunk. You take up yoga, walk and swim, and nothing works, the outlook's grim. You don't know what to do, you cry, you're running out of things to try. You blow your nose, you see the shrink, you walk, you give up food and drink, you fall in love, you make a plan, you struggle to improve your man, and nothing works, the outlook's grim. You go to yoga, cry and swim, you eat and drink, You give up looks. You struggle to improve your books. You cannot see the point. You sigh. You do not smoke. You have to try. Well, that was exactly how I felt at the time. Um, And so miserable that, you know, um, and just so angry at the idea that people think I only write light verse. (laughs) But you think that the humour did help to shift your... your Yeah, the humour and the form. I mean, just getting it down and, and just getting it down and calling it to order. It's what something I think Clive James said about Larkin. He faces the worst on our behalf and brings it to order. With art forms like stand-up in poetry converging, 
academics taking laughter as a serious subject of study, and governments even measuring happiness. Is this the cultural moment for comic poetry? We're in this kind of age where positivity is, is the thing that we're all after. And I think in the book you even say, you know, today happiness is a multi-million pound industry, which is slightly sinister. But, you know, there is, it's everywhere in a way. Mm. And I wonder whether this is the time, ironically, maybe for more, more funny verse, maybe people will be looking towards poems and things that make them feel better. I mean, it made me think, you know, can you imagine a time where we might go to a doctor and they might prescribe a poem or prescribe art that changes our feelings? And do you think that's a, a, that could happen and it's a good thing if it did? I think it would be a, an amazing thing if it did. I think it would be a wonderful thing if it did. I think that one of the things that I'm so very committed to in, in my research and just as a person as well is that it's really important to acknowledge the kind of great range of emotions that we have. And, you know, when I feel sad or terrified or whatever you know reading a a poem or a piece of literature or something that kind of conveys that emotion makes me feel part of something bigger it makes me feel less alone it therefore makes that emotion more manageable but as for whether we might be prescribed funny poems in order to I don't know cheer us up I mean sometimes funny poems cheer you up but often you want funny poems because you want to sort of find the levity in, in perhaps a, a complex or difficult situation and I think that those in those kind of moments because you know, if you're feeling sad you don't want someone to kind of go come on you know cheer up here laugh <laughs> you know it's le- that's not going to work is it so that that sort of prescribing we don't want but um but some sort of sense in which that 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 a funny poem can kind of help you acknowledge the sort of I don't know, I guess the breadth of an emotion in any kind of situation which might include levity and also might include terrible sort of nostalgia or sorrow or whatever, loss or, you know, all of those emotions, um, then I think that, that comedy definitely has a place. In case you were starting to worry that this programme was getting far too serious with all this academic talk, then to end, here's a scratchy but wonderfully surreal recording of Luke doing a stand-up set at King's Place. We join Luke as he bemoans the theft of some of his best poetry titles from some of poetry's greats, including Seamus Heaney and Caroline Duffy. And it's a reminder that you can laugh your socks off at a poetry reading. Just listen to this lot. Heaney would be pleased with that title. But Heaney would have just nicked it. He was terrible for that, nicking young poets' titles. And you're laughing, thinking, well, of course he wouldn't do that, because you wouldn't stand for it. You'd just go, that's my title. He had the best lawyers, he just, he, he wanted something, he'd just take it. And he wouldn't do it himself, and he'd get one of his heavy spirit, like, you know, like Paul Maldoom or someone, call him up, stroke at midnight, phone rings, top of the morning. <laughs> and that phrase still strikes fear into my heart, top of the morning. Maldoom here, Shane's heard about the title, what title, you know what title, the best one. So Duffy is a problem now. <laughs> there it's whole poems, you know what I mean? Not content. I think it's just got, it's, she's got magic powers. You, you know, because you get when you're a laureate, you get like a butter sherry at five grand, and then you, like magic powers. So she can, she knows, she knows when you've written a really good poem, and so like, no matter where, it's quite good in a way. Cause you know you've written something good if Duffy wants it, right? Okay, but uh, wherever you are, the door of where you are just comes off its hinges, right? And she's always backlit. Like she must carry her own lights around with her because like. She stands there like that. It's her and there's Gillian Clark and there's Liz Lockett and they just stand there. And Duffy just twiddles her ring. And eventually she says, Shurinda, the Shifina. 
It will certainly be better when Armitage gets more power, but today's revolutionaries are tomorrow's dictators, aren't they? That's not true, I made all that up, isn't it? I'm just, I'm just teasing. Um, apart from the bit about Muldoon, he doesn't ring up quite late. Well, for that, you'll have to listen to episode six. You've been listening to the Poet in the City podcast presented by me, Alia Carson, featuring music from Haiku Salute. And for full details of the poems featured in this episode, visit www.poetinthecity.co.uk.